Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Indeed, as the brother prayed earlier on, all scripture is God-breathed. It's infallible. Spoken from the mouth of God for your good and mine. That we will be edified by his word. And we have given you a commitment here at Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. And that commitment is that we will systematically work our way through the whole of scripture, chapter by chapter, if the Lord gives us life and we intend to keep that commitment however that being said if it were up to me well let me just say this is a big book there's almost 1100 chapters in the book and considering it takes me on average 10 sermons per chapter there are a lot of options in this book if it were up to me to choose there's plenty of material and I'll probably die without touching some of that material in the way of a sermon if it were up to me. But it's not up to me. And here we are in Judges chapter 19. This passage would not make it very far on top of my list. In fact, if I were to make a list, it would be on the bottom somewhere because it is a text that is difficult. It's an uncomfortable text. Given it is the word of God, it is breathed for our edification, and we know that. But in this text, we see the darkness of the man, of the human soul, of the human heart. And it is so dark and ugly. And as I was preparing, I was thinking, what words can I use to adequately describe what we find here in Judges chapter 19? Shameful, grotesque, gruesome disgraceful are some of the words that came to my mind as I'm explaining or describing what we find here in the text that is before us. It is that dark, it is that ugly, beloved, but this is Scripture. And although Scripture, the Lord our God, condemns all evil, all acts of wickedness, Scripture is brutally honest. It tells us as it was or as it is, and it tells us the accounts with detail how they took place. But that doesn't make it any less, I guess, easy on those who have weak stomachs. Because I think anyone who is of decency would feel sick to the stomach when they read some of the content of what we've just read here in Judges chapter 19. And to add to that, there is actually no hero in this story. In fact, there's no hero here in chapter 19. And as we work our way through Judges 21, from 17, from chapter 17 through 21, five chapters in fact, there's not going to be a hero. This Levite that is in the text before us, Levite in this chapter, he's a wicked man. Don't, don't let the beginning fool you in any way. When he's pressed in a corner, when things become difficult... His true colors are revealed and the contents of his heart is made known and it's, and it's dark. Let's face it, this book is a book that reveals 
the darkness of the unrestrained heart, especially here in the life of Israel in this epoch of time. We've We've seen bad things happen. We've worked our way through this book. Israel been, been, uh, has done deplorable acts of evil and wickedness and idolatry. We've seen that. It's called the book of Judges for a reason. And that is because although they're unworthy of the grace and the mercy and the love of God, He still yet loves them. He's decreed in his sovereign decree to preserve these people for a reason and preserve them, he will. And so over and again, as they have acted in ways of rebellion and treason against the only true God, they called out whether it is in true repentance or only to save the skin off their own back. The God of the universe shows mercy upon them even though they don't deserve the mercy. And he does that by way of delivering them through appointing a judge, a man who we've already come to see over the book of Judges, men with many flaws. Yet they're empowered by the Spirit of God to bring, to accomplish the work that the Lord God has given them and to bring the people out of the plight that they were that they were in. But here, and often as the Lord brings them out, we see a period of reformation. Not always, but often we see that. But here in the text that is before us, there is no deliverer. Here that is in the text before us, there is no judge. Here that is in the text before us, there is no reformation. And to add to this, it's not the Philistines who are the enemies. It's not the Ammonites who are causing the oppression upon the people of Israel. This is not dark because of the Ammonite Ammonite oppression. It's not the Midianites or the Moabites. In fact, it's none of the paganites that are the enemies. This text is so dark here. And as I said previously, the book of Judges is like a spiral that gets darker and darker and darker and darker. And we are in the last five chapters, which is the darkest portion of this book. And it's dark not because of their enemies. It's dark because they themselves are their enemies. It's Israelite herself who is the enemy. Because it seems like God is giving them over to the machinations of their own evil hearts. The darkest times in the book of Judges is reserved to a time where Israel itself is manifesting the content of her own heart. And is it any different to the pagans? They will weep, they will moan, and they will come to Yahweh We'll see that over the next few chapters with tears in their eyes. But going by what they do next in their actions, that weeping is simply to save the skin of their own back. Because what we see here is a people who have kicked God out of the equation and have made themselves the final authority made themselves the arbiters of what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is evil. Actually, the first words of the chapter that are before us are the key to understanding. Have a look at them. In those days when there was no king in Israel. Beyond the fact that there was no physical king, this is true. A physical king will not come for a couple of centuries. That is so true. He's yet 
yet to come, but the words that are before us are beyond the physical king that is spoken of. There is a spiritual reality in these words because moving forward, the people of Israel will actually demand a king and they'll demand a king from the judge called Samuel. And when they demand a king, Samuel will be upset and he will go to the Lord and the Lord will tell Samuel, give them a king. They haven't rejected you. The Lord says to Samuel, they've rejected me as king. So in other words, what is taking place before Israel had a king, Israel had a king. He may not have been a physical king to sit on the throne as Saul and uh, as David and, and, um, and Solomon. Maybe not that. But they had a king. And so when we read in these words, in those days where there was no king in Israel, it's meant to move the heart of the reader to ask the question, what about Yahweh? What about the Lord God? Isn't he their king? This time is so dark because Yahweh has been dethroned as their sovereign. And beloved, if we even have a superficial understanding, a very shallow understanding of what Scripture speaks to in regards to the throne, we would know this much. The throne of your life, the throne of my life, the throne of the lives of every one of those Israelites was never vacant. It's either the Lord God, the only true King of kings, who sits on throne, or he's evicted, and there is someone on the throne, and it's called self. Man likes to put self on the throne. There's no other option. Either God is on the throne or self is on the throne. There's no two ways about it. The throne is never empty. And in fact, we're told here in those days when there was no king in Israel, it ought to remind us of chapter 17. And what is also written, not only in chapter 17, when the brackets sort of start from 17 through 21, but also what is written in the very last words of this book, the book of Judges. In those days when there was no king in Israel, everyone did what is right in his own eyes. Oh, the throne is occupied, all right. It's occupied by self. What we have in the final chapters of this book is the result, the outcome the outcome that comes from that throne of your life or mine or the people of Israel who are before us, when one declares himself or herself as the supreme authority over their own life, and it's not pretty, it gets dark and dark and dark. And we see that before us. So what do we have before us? As with the previous two chapters, the main character in the story is a Levite. We see him here. We have no name. He's just told that he's a man. He's a Levite from the hill country of Ephraim. Levites weren't allotted land or inheritance land, were they? You know why? Because the Lord said, I am your portion. What a blessing to serve 
the Lord, to be part of the people who served the Lord in the tabernacle, whether it's packing down or packing up or serving as priests who come from the Levite clan as well. They were to serve the Lord. They were in the presence of God. They were to represent the people of Israel before the Lord. They were to read the word of God. They were to meditate upon his laws and his priests. They were to teach the people to be fully immersed in the word of God and to gladly and joyfully proclaim that word to the people of Israel and to live as an example of those whose heart is fully given over in love and devotion to the only true God. That would be the examples. That would be to be the best of the very best. So the story begins well with this Levite from the hill country of Ephraim. Because it seems at first he's a man with forgiveness in his heart. It seems at first that he's acting in love and forgiveness, seeking to be reconciled to the woman who had wronged him. And he's going over quite a distance to come through and to come and reconcile with the concubine, essentially his wife, without some privileges. So he journeys south to her father's house in Bethlehem, where she's staying to reconcile with her. The text only tells us that she was unfaithful. At least it says that in some of the other translations, it says it could be actually deemed that she was angry with him. Being unfaithful does connote a a sexual immorality and adultery, but also it could be seen as that she was angry with him. So there's, there's, there's two possible interpretations here. It's hard to know which one because if she was an adulteress, then the law, the law according to the law of Moses, the one that the Lord gave the people of Israel was that an adulteress should be what? What's the punishment? Should be stoned. Now, he may, as a Levite, he may not wish to stone her if he had compassionate towards her, but the father would, or at least the community around them. But then again, then again, it's not exactly like the people of Israel were very concerned for the law of God in this day. And we've seen other sins in this passage just let go and and be allowed to manifest without any punishment. They didn't have a zeal for the law of God. One would say that if she was an adulteress, then the Levite would be very hesitant to take her back. But that's probably not a concern for him as well. Again, we don't exactly see a man who has a zeal for the law of God. Lawlessness would best describe Israel in this day. Either way, the Levite without name makes his journey. He makes it to Bethlehem and he's welcomed quite graciously into the father's house. And he enjoys wonderful fellowship with the father-in-law. Wonderful fellowship. Three days he enjoyed his company and the father-in-law seems to latch onto him like a leech and not let him go. On the fourth he plans to go and then the the father-in-law says, now why don't you just stay with us and eat a little bit more food. Let's be merry, he does. The day passes on and it's almost dark. Let's stay here, sleep the night, go in the morning. Next morning, same thing and before you know it, this Levi understands unless I assert myself and say enough is enough, I'm going to be here until next month. So he decides around probably halfway through the afternoon to pick up and go to take his concubine and to pick up and to return. Now he's in the south to return back back north. He's in Bethlehem. So he begins to, to make the journey back north to, and he goes by a place called Jebus. We're told that is Jerusalem, about 10 kilometers north of Bethlehem. But, and, the, and the servant tells the Levite, let's go in there. It's starting to get dark. Let's go in there and find a place to lodge. But the Levite sounds all noble. No, we're not going to go in there, he says. Why? Because these, these are Jebusites. These are the descendants of, of Canaan. These are, these are not our people. No, we will go and lodge with our people. It's okay. Let's progress a little further north, another 
8, 9, 10Ks or so, and we'll find ourselves in a place called Gibeah or another 2Ks north again in a place called Ramah, and that's what they do. So by the time they get to Gibeah, it's fairly dark, and they, they think, or at least he thinks, going to Gibeah, their fellow Israelites will show them a hand of hospitality, Right? The Benjaminites, who, who are the ones who, who live in Gibeah, would show them hospitality. But how wrong was he? They find themselves there and they find that no one lets them in. No one opens their door to them. No one says, come on in. It's not like there was going to be a burden. We're told the donkeys were saddled up with goods. There's enough food for fodder for the donkeys, enough food for all of them. So anyone who'd walk by would see that the donkeys are likely overflowing with bits and they'll be okay. But they weren't interested, the Benjaminites. But an old man was. He comes back from work, it seems, and he's sojourning in Gibeah because he's from the hill country of Ephraim. What do you know? From the same place as a Levite. Some good conversations would be had. And so they, he finds them there and he asks where they're from. He tells them the story. He says, you, you come. You come with me. You're going to come into my home and stay the night with me. You're not staying in the open square. This man knows what he's talking about. He knows the danger of this area. He takes them in and shows them wonderful hospitality. They eat, they drink, they're merry. They're on their first drink or two or thereabouts. And next thing you know, there's pounding on the door. Pounding on the door and cries from the outside. And there are men from that, from that area in, in that city, Gibeah, crying out at the top of their voices, Bring out that man who's among you, old man, that we may have relations with him, that we may know him. The term here means that we would be, that we would be sexually aroused and, 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 and take him in in that way by this man. When you, when, you, when you read this, somehow, if you're on a summer's day and you've got your Bible in your hand and the fan on one side, you may think that, that the, the Bible, the fan, has flicked a few pages over to Genesis chapter 19. You think maybe you're reading that. The, the account, remember, of light in Sodom and Gomorrah when the angels had come and, and the men of the city came in and did the same thing, knocking at the door. Bring the, the angels out. Bring those men out that we would have relationships with them. This is not Sodom or Gomorrah. These are not Sodomites, although they are Sodomites in that sense. These are homosexual Benjaminites exercising their unnatural lusts. Unnatural lusts. Unrestrained lusts. No care for the law of God. No care that, that the, the, the law of Moses, the law that God had given to his people, would say and, suggest and tell them that this is an abominable sin. It is detestable before the Lord. And it is also punishable by death. Death of stoning. Didn't care. And later we'll find out that the people of the area didn't care either. And there was protection over these people. Everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. Self on throne, remember. And God gives them over to exercise such depravity. Of course, the host is responsible for his guests. The safety and the security of his guests is in his hands. He can't allow such a thing to happen. But what he offers is just as wicked. He may have meant well, but that's not a good solution. It's actually a disgusting one. Yeah, I have a virgin daughter. We don't know what age. He's a virgin daughter and he has his concubine. Why don't we give them to you? And then you can do as you please with these women. But please do not touch this man. Beloved, there has been many in 
in history who have tried to justify his actions. In saying that in some way the sin of raping those women would be less abhorrent than the sin of him raping a man. Now the sin of homosexuality is a deep disgusting sin. The Bible says it is abominable. It is against the plan or or the purpose of God for sexuality that is designed between one man and one woman under the covenant marriage. But you cannot justify what this man has done. It's pure evil to throw these women out as though they were feed, cattle feed, as though they had no value. It is wrong. And the Bible tells us what takes place and the Bible would condemn such activity. Because the Bible doesn't condemn it in this place, there are many instances where you give in details where it doesn't condemn it in that place. But the Bible is very clear from beginning to end, principally, these actions are condemned. They don't have love. So it throws... That's his solution. But the lusting men, they don't want the women. They say, we don't want the women. We don't want anyone other than that man. Bring him out. They're not satisfied. They want the man. And then the Levite does something that you would, you couldn't even imagine he'd do. Forcefully, the word sees here, forcefully he takes his concubine, this is his wife, and he throws her out before the men of the city the Benjaminites, who are lusting after himself, like throwing, I don't know, a rabbit amongst the wolves to devour. And devour, they do. They quickly succumb to the fact that they're not going to get their hands on him. She'll have to do. And then what comes next is a night of torture, illicit, disgusting, and we won't even repeat it on this pulpit because it is so pervert, perverse and horrible they let her go at daybreak she finds her way back to where they were staying and collapses there at the door and when the Levite husband sees her there in the morning he picks her body up likely she's dead she didn't respond to any of his calls puts her on his donkey takes her back home And then he does something so callous and unthinkable. He cuts her up, limb from limb, in 12 pieces and sends her all over the territory of Israel. That is, to every tribe in Israel. The response to that message, we will see next week, Lord willing. But don't for a moment think that this Levite who is depicted before us is depicted as some sort of contrast to the Levite in chapter 17 and 18. As though this this man is a victim of the circumstances. It's not that at all. As though this man, who, who should be a man who has God's own heart, who practices true religion and love and respect and honor for the word of God. That's not it at all. This man is evil. Run your eyes down to verse 27. The author of this narrative, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, is trying to tell us something. In verse 3, this Levite was called her husband. He says, her husband, he's the one who set out to get his concubine back. Now in verse 26 and 27, on both occasions, the man is referred to as her as master. Why? What's the difference between a master and a husband? 
Well, we can't be sure. But I think the emotions are taken out. From what we see coming next, the emotions that we thought this man had for his concubine, his wife, the emotions of love and compassion and mercy, it seems that they're all gone. Because verse 27 tells us, and her master rose up in the morning. When did they get to Gibeah? As the sun was going down. As, they, as he rose up, master rose up in the morning. And this intentionally suggests that he was in a resting, lying state, likely even asleep. And then he raises himself up in the morning. He stayed in his house until the sun came up. Whilst his concubine, his wife is out there, God knows what's happening. He had no idea. And he stayed in his home. And when he opened the doors, we're told, of the house and went out to go on his way. Beloved, the author of this book, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, he, he's, not, he's not writing words for no reason. When you read that, and when he opened the doors of his house and went out to go on his way, the purpose for opening the doors for him to go out on his way, was he abandoning his concubine and just leaving and going back now that he's given her away? Like, there's nothing here to suggest that his heart was broken over this woman. There was concern for her. Nothing, nothing at all. He opens that door and he's met with a surprise. He says, behold, behold, surprised. There was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. If you think I'm being too hard on the guy, if you think I'm being a bit too critical, if you think that I believe if you, that this man is only trying to was only trying to save his skin by pushing his own concubine out towards those evil men. Then read verse 28. He sees her there, and the first words that come out of his mouth to his concubine, to his wife, get up, let us be going. Lying there lifeless on the floor. And the first impulse this Levite has from the woman that he supposedly loves, he's journeyed a distance to reconcile and to bring, to talk to her sweetly and to bring her back. The first words are, get up, let's get going. Get up, we're late. Beloved, is that not heartless? The best of the best of the people of Israel in this day. And these are the evil actions. The best of men are men at best. So why such a gruesome story in the Bible? Well, yes, as I said earlier, there is a sense that we're meant to see the depravity of the people collectively as covenant breakers, that they are unfaithful to the covenant they made with Yahweh, but he is faithful. 
He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his promise. He made a promise that he will preserve a people. He made a promise to Abraham that from his loins, all the families of the world will be blessed, that there will be a singular seed that comes through that people and he will be the hope of all humanity, that that seed will be the one that is promised in Genesis chapter 3.15. He would be the one, the offspring of a woman to, to stamp the head of Satan himself and he will come through the people of Israel, through Abraham's loins. And although the people of Israel are worthy over and again to be crushed under the judgment of God, there is a sense here that we're given these words to show us the absolute faithfulness of God, despite the unfaithfulness of his people. But also I think there is another reason. And the other reason I believe we're given this is to see how far man can sink into sin and depravity and into darkness when he is without a king. Remember earlier on, I, I said that there are, no, there are no words to adequately describe what takes place and the amount of evil that takes place in this passage. Grotesque and shameful and abhorrent are some of the words that came, came to mind. And, 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 these are, and these are the people of Israel. They, these aren't the pagans. We're not talking about Sodom and Gomorrah a people who had not been given the word of God, the statutes of God, the precepts of God, a people who had not covenanted with God. They didn't hear his voice from Sinai. They hadn't seen his grace, his promises being fulfilled. They weren't sitting in a land that had been promised centuries earlier and fulfilled now in their very presence. This is the people of God and they've been given the word of God. They were covenanted with God and despite all that, they're capable of such sin because the word of God and his precepts were in the mind but they hadn't sunk into the soul. And I think I believe this text is given to us to see the depth of darkness that is capable in the heart of a human being, a man or a woman, apart from God himself. And that means, that means, if you've heard me speak deplorably of the characters of this text, I have done so for a reason. Because brothers and sisters, apart from Jesus Christ, you and I would be no different. There are sins that are listed in this text that I have never been tempted with. And for, a, for the very first time, to be honest with you, very first time, as I'm preparing for this text, it came to me that apart from Him and His grace, what would stop me from going down that path? Nothing. Sin begets sin. But I don't lean that way. I'm not predisposed to that thinking. It doesn't matter. Sin begets sin, begets sin. And the deeper you get, the deeper you become, the deeper you go. And before you know it, you're doing things you never imagined you'd ever do or think about. I think this text is given to us so that we can see how deeply depraved the human heart is. It is deceitful. And wicked. Above all things, who can understand it? And I believe when we read this text and we read what can take place 
when the King of all kings, King Jesus, has not been enthroned in your heart and mine and the depravity that is possible in the heart of mankind apart from Him and Himself, I believe we are meant to look at that and actually shudder before Him and be marveled at His grace, to be marveled at His mercy. Don't look down upon these people. This could be us. May He break any pride or arrogance we have so that we can fall in humility before Him every day on our faces because this could be us. The worst of sins you can ever imagine. The only reason why now they are deplorable to you. Men, the only reason right now you're thinking in your mind that this Levite did something so horrible and abhorrent that you would never do such a thing. And I'm with you. I hope and pray I would never do such a thing. But the only reason is not because you're strong or you're capable or because you're morals. The only reason is because Jesus Christ is the one who empowers you to, th- to such things. Because apart from Him, you have no power to do anything. Apart from Him, self is on the throne. And whatever self desires, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and they sink deeper and deeper and deeper into darkness. They're the things that you will want. And they're the things that I would want. We're meant to. We're meant to look at the depravity that takes place in these passages. And we're meant to stand back and cry out with the Apostle Paul, Oh, what wretched man I am who can save me from this body of death. But thanks be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's our only hope.